Hello, everyone. It is That Wings Guy. We're recording on Sunday, February the 25th. And joining us tonight is the most interesting dentist in the world, Dr. Sherman House. How are you, sir? Good, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, if you would introduce yourself, it's been a while since you've been on. Sure. Um, my name is Sherman House. Um, well, let's see. I've been a, a full-time hospital general and special needs dentist for the last 15 years. Um, prior to that, I was a career first responder in fire, EMS, and law enforcement. Um, I maintained a law enforcement commission as a reserve police officer until approximately nine months ago um, when I resigned my commission when I left the state of Tennessee, the great state of Tennessee. Um, and I'm currently living in my homeland of Washington State, the I'm, I'm currently uh, at the northwest terminus of the continental United States, about 30 miles from Victoria, British Columbia, right at the edge of the ocean. And um, I uh, started training as a law enforcement cadet in 1990, um, took my first uh, formalized training class outside of uh, institutional learning in 1996 and um, worked for tactical response under James Yeager starting in 2006 um, and all the way up until his death and then shortly thereafter um, before I moved out of Tennessee. And um, let's see, I'm a range master, pistol and shotgun instructor, uh, DTI instructor, advanced instructor under John Farnham. And then I'm one of the original tactical response uh, instructor graduates. So, and, so oh, and then I also spent um, about a decade in uh, what, what Tom Gibbons calls the anti-robbery uh, job description, working on an armored truck. So should the Canadians attempt an amphibious landing, you are our first line of defense. Yeah, I got it. They're, they don't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of my, my grandfather's, you know, favorite jokes was he, he fought in Italy in World War II and then was activated mm -hmm. for the Korean War but was stationed in Puerto Rico. And it was like, you know, he must have scared – the North Koreans must have heard what he did to the Italians, and that's why they never invaded Puerto Rico. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, if that happens, there'll be a 4570 uh, large heavyweight projectiles flying down the hill. <laughs> uh, also joining us tonight is John Hearn. Good evening, folks. John is a man of leisure these days. Oh, that is far from the truth. <laughs> I may have retired from federal service, but uh, I just merely changed careers. And I seem to be the only difference now is that I'm really busy with stuff that's more important to me, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty much my wife's just amazed at like how hard I'm going at it. So there you go. Uh, I'll be happy to get down to one job one of these days, much less retire. Well, you're not to the phase yet where you got to wear glasses, you're going to need to put some glasses on. Uh, I'm supposed to wear glasses, I just don't. Oh, me too. I've got a prescription of glasses. There are glasses here somewhere. I, I don't know where I put them. Well, everybody wonders just, about what Lee's weaknesses are. So apparently, vanity is one of them that he's never <laughs> recognized before. No, it's got nothing to do with that. 
but uh, yeah, I, last time I got glasses, I spent all the money to have them done as ballistic, you know, protection, everything so I could wear my regular glasses, as safety glasses on the range, et cetera. Get out to the first range session and draw and present the pistol and look right over the lens, the frames, and not through the lenses. And that's what well, was a waste of money. Yeah. And so I just go around blind. It's okay. I make up for it by not being able to hear. All right. So I've been amused by some happenings on the inter internet here lately. And for the most part here recently, I have been staying out of the gunosphere just because I've been so busy. Uh, but uh, this past week or so, I just could not help it. Uh, just stumbled across a couple of things. Primarily, uh, the response to a couple of videos that Mr. Ken Hackathorn has put out. And there being other people, I think Paul Howell was in one of them. I'm not sure who was in the other. Uh, slipping my mind. And just I thought I knew. Okay, and, and the response that has been with those and like people, well, that's it. He's irrelevant. And I've seen some of this and I'm like, so you've never been relevant, but you're labeling him irrelevant. And that that just just tickled me. And so I, I sent her a message the, yesterday. I'm like, I'm so tempted to post this. And I was thinking that Hearn would be the voice of reason and would talk me out of it. And he didn't. He actually encouraged me. So that's why he's got to be on here tonight to, to, to answer for his misdeeds. And so I posted it uh, yesterday. And basically what I did was I'm amused at all the people who have never been relevant, commenting that Ken Hackathorn has become irrelevant. And it's, you know, I don't say it's gone viral, but uh, it's gotten some some very interesting responses online. And I don't want to necessarily talk about the quote so much, but just that whole mindset of, oh, well, that's what he said, something I disagree with. He's no longer relevant when you've got an entire multi-decades long body of work of relevance that's out there. And to top it off is they're completely missing his point. And that's what gets me. Uh, John, I want to throw it to you just to discuss the final points of the two videos that are in question. Well, I actually, uh, I did this crazy thing where I actually tried to watch the videos real quick today. And uh, we probably don't need to talk about all these things, but the two videos that really got his attention, Paul Howell's in both. Uh, the topics in one were weapon-mounted lights, pocket rockets, capacity, and red dot sights. And the other one was how do we handle bad students, appendix carry, the value of the one-second draw, different ready gun positions, and God forbid, maybe we need to practice enough to anchor our techniques. So I think it was the red dots and the weapon-mounted light stuff that mm -hmm. generated the most flack. And, uh, you know, I, I hate logical fallacies, and I hate necessarily appeals to authority. But if one could ever offer an authority to whom one might appeal, I would offer that would be Hackathorn. Um, I'm sure there's some instructors that have probably seen more rounds downrange and more students than he but that man has been there since this thing kicked off in the 70s. You know, a founder of USPSA, IPSC, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, subsequent founder of IDPA, um, found, you know, founded SWAT teams, did a ton of military training, private sector trainer for a long time. And one of the things that I think the advantage he has is you just, if you sit long enough, you'll see stuff that other people don't. And if you've been promised gear, to solve problems from the 1970s, you're probably going to be a trifle cynical 
about some of those promises because you've seen over the years some of those promises simply not come to fruition. Or I think where we are like necessary with Red Dots is you see a technology coming along and you go, hey, that has some promise. But you know what? It's not quite ready for prime time. Or here's a crazy idea. Maybe the value and the context within which it fits is more narrow and limited than people want to give people credit for. So um, I hate it when people kind of straw man somebody. But, you know, when you move to the topic of weapon mounted lights, what did Hackathorn say? Well, first off, he said there's certain niches in which a weapon mounted light is really valuable. Okay, he straight up said, if you're in these environments, they're really good. Okay, he didn't poo-poo weapon mounted lights. He said, hey, if you're doing cop stuff, especially entries, searching with one, you know, uh, where you're having to have uh, one hand free to do a lot of stuff, a weapon mounted light makes a lot of sense. I agree with him. I think that if you're a uniformed cop, you need to light on the gun, and I would dare say that you probably need a GG switch on it so that as soon as the gun's coming out of the holster, you can start to gather visual information. The other time he said that weapon-mounted lights were really valuable was on a home defense gun. And I know this is going to shock the internet, but he says, I have a light on my bedside gun. And again, the the home defense gun, uh, I used pointed this out and stuff like this. You know, the great thing about that is you may be on the phone trying to call 911. You may be trying to wrangle house members and stuff like that. Having a weapon-mounted light that's coaxial with the muzzle lets you do a lot of stuff while keeping a support hand free. So I think what Hackathorn really questioned, and I think it's perfectly valid, is whether a weapon-mounted light is necessary for the typical armed citizen, you know, kind of concealed carrier moving on about their business. And I would dovetail into that, probably that same group, off-duty cops. And I think that's a very, very good discussion to have. You know, Hackathorn never said weapon-mounted lights were worthless or useless. He said that they fit certain niches really, really well. And I don't see where there is valuable in other niches. Um, you know, I was trying to find it. Carl Wren had a great riff because, again, uh, instructors that have watched lots of students go through stuff know what actually happens. And both Paul Howe, Ken Hackathorn, and Carl Wren have all noted is that as soon as you put a light on the gun, it seems to be an open invitation to ignore rule two. And if it's a home defense gun and stuff like that, that's probably one of those arenas in which rule two is most important because of all the people in this world that I have some obligation to protect, it's in my own home. So, you know, I, I just, I, I always get annoyed when people straw man arguments. So that was uh, real quickly what he said about uh, weapon mounted lights. Uh, did you want me to keep going or pause and discuss this point? Uh, just one thing I do want to interject. If I remember correctly, what he said about pistol mounted optics is he didn't say they were bad. He didn't say there was no benefit to them. What he said was to get the benefit of them is you have to train with them and maintain that, 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 that training. But for the typical gun owner, you know, they're just going to buy the gun, make out something, something like shoot it every now and then, but most of them just have it and carry it, that they're not going to see the advantage of it. And at the distances that the typical encounter takes place, there's really not a whole lot of advantage. And, you know, I'll come back around with my opinion on that in a moment, but I just, I just wanted to interject that. Uh, Sherman, what do you well, think? Anyway, says, you know, he says pretty much I've got the transcript pulled up here. You know, shooters, the guys that go to the range every week, the guys that shoot competitively, the guys that you say, how many rounds do you shoot? The guys say, well, I shoot 10,000 rounds a year. 
yeah, that's 1%. Now, yes, the average cop, the average citizen, the average soldier, yeah, they don't shoot much at all, and they sure don't drive dry fire. So, you know, he's basically pointing out that if you're going to be one of those people that – here's a shock idea. If you're one of those people that does the work, there's a there's benefit to be had there. But if you're not one of those people and you aren't willing to do the work, it you know, number one, you've got I think the, the issues with the dots are number one is you have being able to drive the dot, dot on target and use it effectively. And then we've got the whole um, you know, black hole of just the reliability of the optics and more particularly the the, the reliability of the mounting systems. So um that was, I guess, a quick recap with some of, God forbid, the direct quotes from the man that everybody wants to malign on the Internet. Yeah, because they're just completely disregarding what he actually said because they heard something negative about their chosen Woody or whatever you want to call it, and they have to savage it. For instance, one, one comment um, uh, on the, the thing that I posted was basically, yeah, the guy that has to be in the bed by dark in the nursing home every night says we shouldn't have a weapon mounted light. Well, I'll grant, I'll go ahead and say, I don't know who that guy that said that was, but I'll put my money on Hackathorn if they're going to go at it. Uh, I'd be wherever old man in, in profession for men die young, as the saying would go. Uh, but be, if you're going to disagree with the man, at least be disagree with what he actually said, not what you're just emotionally raging on about. Thought you, Sherman? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. I think that the the basis of a lot of this is straw man arguments coming from um, the latter two generations the, uh, that um, don't. Well, you know, you you both have been educators, you know, outside of 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 you know formalized uh, firearms and safety training, and you know that that this current generation and the generation that preceded it you know millennials and gen z um they pay no mind to the value of history like full stop uh like i'll I'll die on that hill and i'm always amazed that you know when i was teaching the number of students that would say like well how do you know and i'm like because this is something that's established in the textbook like we've known this since 1906 and they're like, I had no idea, you know, and when you would talk about, um, like, for example, I, you know, when you called me to ask me um, if I would do this, I was hanging out with my my American literature teacher from high school is, you know, still alive and has a farm, you know, about a half hour from where I live. And so I go out there and sit in a shop with him and, you know, BS and talk about books for a few hours. And he was telling me about, you know, the number of young people these days that you know they they literally haven't read one american literature novel in the span of their high school career so i said all that to say that um you know when a lot of those people that are pressing this straw man argument when they look at somebody like ken hackathorn they think you know that's to them that's somebody that is their great grandparent age you know, not even their grandparent age, you know, and um, so the, um, you know, to pay Ken Hackathorne no mind, especially for like guys like us that grew up, you know, reading guys like Hackathorne and Ayub and Chuck Taylor and Jeff Cooper, 
um, and Chapman and so many of these other guys that they were there at the beginnings of all of this and to just disregard their opinion because they're old, you know, or they're, they're dated or, you know, their information is, is no longer current. It's just a bunch of BS. And it's, it's, it's frankly like shameful, uh, you know, to not, it, it sounds cliche to say, but like to be disrespectful to your elders, you know, the people that came before you, uh, I don't care like who you are. Like he knows more than you do. You know, he's the Ron Swanson walking through Lowe's. He knows more than, than the guy that's working there. Like uh, that's a absolutely uh, safe statement to be able to make. And then as far as like topically, John, you know, talking about the weapon mounted light thing, like, you know, I mean, I have a weapon mounted light um, that I carried on my duty pistol, you know, with iron sights. And um, I wear that gun like, once or twice a year when I actually go to a movie, uh, you know, in a theater um, where it's dark. Um, and uh, that's the only time I use it, you know, like my home defense gun has a light on it. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm a handheld guy. And I think that both of you guys too, you know, like when, when I went to the Academy in 1990, like, you know, I tried to comment a few things on that post that you made Lee and Facebook, said it i was violating community standards but um uh you know i said you know one of the arguments that people made these are regular civilians mind you these aren't people that work in a law enforcement or military capacity like how am i supposed to take somebody down at gunpoint if i don't have a weapon mounted light and i said well a why are you taking somebody down at gunpoint if you're a civilian like that's that's not in your job description and then b uh, if you want to go down that road, since you rang that bell, we did it in the nineties all the time with, you know, SL twenties and SL 35 for, you know, an hour. Uh, and there was no Metro ready back then. There really was no low ready. Like you literally mm -hmm. had, you know, a gun aimed at the torso or the head of whoever you were taking down in a felony stop with your arm out, you know? And like, everybody had really big forearms back then and nobody said anything about it. You know, it wasn't, that big of a deal so you know to say that you're at a huge performance deficit to use a handheld light i, I think that that's silly and i think that um you know in, in just in day-to-day -day life um you know the I, I think that weapon mounted lights are superfluous so when all this happened with the the bad ken talk initially i was talking to chuck about it and uh, <laughs> and chuck said uh chuck haggard i said yeah, Chuck Haggard. And I said, you know, my in, in my experience, you know, in the defensive gun uses that I've been involved in, in the uh, anti-robbery industry, it was perfectly uh, obvious to me um, who the bad guys were because they had either ski masks or bandanas on their face. And, and there was at no point where I was like, man, I really could use a light to be able to figure out which of these guys need to be shot. Um, there was no it wasn't even a thing. And, and I think that that's the, that's the factor that so many people overlook here and they they're, they're living in the movies and they're thinking that there's going to be these really complex scenarios. And as you guys both know, and as many of our students have experienced, you know, it's literally like you're moseying through the parking lot and some dude pops out from behind a parked car and says, give me your wallet or give me your watch or give me your phone or give me whatever. And so, 
you don't have to do a whole bunch of positive target identification, like just raw, just shoot the guy that's robbing you, you know, like it's, it's not that hard to figure out. And then, you know, uh, Tom has also made this point before when he talks in his uh, home invasion um, lecture block is uh, most of these home invasion, you know, true life situations, there's very little ambiguity in who the problem is, you know, like mistaken identity shootings. Yeah, those could happen. But like, would a weapon mounted light make a difference in those? Maybe, but you still got to muzzle someone that could potentially be in bad outcome. If you shot them, would you be better off doing the Claude Werner method by having a handheld light next to your, um, you know, even if you do use a weapon mounted light, you know, you still use your, your handheld for, uh, positive identification and then you could switch over if you got to but um uh most home invasions are, are are pretty obvious you know if i'm sitting here talking to you fellas and there's a door my back door is three yards that way and my front door is 10 yards that way if that door gets kicked in right now um <clears throat> where's the problem <laughs> if the door gets kicked in i i know that's it, it's not avon they don't know who that is. Um, but anyway, uh, you guys got it. So um, candy gram, the, um, you know, there, the, the whole, I, I feel like so much of the, you know, the, the, these softballs that they're throwing in Ken's direction are just based on pure fallacy. I, I mean, they're, they're literally basing things on what they think their scenario is going to be more like John Wick. And it's going to be a whole heck of a lot more like John Belushi. John. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I look at it this way. You're talking about like the home evasion scenario. So you solve that problem in advance by strategically leaving low light around your house. And I would politely mm -hmm. offer that if you do not have the critical thinking, forethought and planning to leave a couple of lights on in your house so you don't have to give away your position to positively identify yourself, you probably don't need to keep a loaded gun around for self-defense, okay? There's a lot of other stuff you need to be solving beforehand, like reinforcing your doors. You know, reinforce your doors. Leave some lights on. That that suddenly becomes a lot less pressing need as far as that mm -hmm. goes. And I would like to yeah. take just one moment here because, Sherman, you said, so, you said a lot of good stuff. But I would like to take one moment for us really, really old school guys to recognize the sheer genius and brutality of the Streamlight SL35. That's one of those yeah. tools that nobody remembers what it was. If you know what an SL20 is, it was an SL20 and a half. And a half. And before, <laughs> before LEDs came along, it would legitimately get through tents. And when you sat there interviewing somebody on the side of the road with that cocked up on top of your shoulder, the compliance rate was like 150%. It wasn't 100%. It was 150% because it was like, yeah. whatever you want me to do to not have you smack me with that, I would greatly do that right now for you so you know let's yeah. take a moment of silence for the the long forgotten sl35 mm -hmm. i still have my um my brass ring on my on my duty belt for mine like it, it's a tech shoemaker one that's probably 35 years old and i'll never take it off of there even though that belt might not fit these days i don't know <laughs> well, you know the it other thing fits. that i find annoying is that, you know, you look at some of the tech specs, these guys that are carrying concealed lights, I think Carl Wynn made a really good point, number one. 
a lot of them are carrying it on there to put extra weight on the gun so they can take a mm -hmm. few hundreds off their build drill times. And the other thing is that a lot of those subcompact lights aren't like a turbo X300. You know, I'm going to no. solve the problem in the movie theater. You're doing it with what, maybe a 500 lumen light with fairly limited throw. So mm -hmm. a lot of the lights, unless you're going to carry a full X300, you know, you're, you're not carrying that much light. And you're yeah. basically, you know, you're spending that time, money, and effort when, quite frankly, I mean, as Tom Gibbons notes, go buy some ammo with that money. You'll probably get more use out of it. Now, if you want to carry the thing around, I don't think any of us are going to condemn you for it. But it's like, dude, there's probably, you know, it tells me that you don't understand the nature of the problem. And mm -hmm. hopefully that you have a lot of surplus time, money, and efforts that you can maybe not be giving up much by having wasted the money on the light that you're probably never ever going to need i think that there's a yeah. you know sherman started down this road there's a huge failure to understand the nature of the problem um at the risk of plugging here i've got an article coming out in recoil magazine i think it's their off-grid and you know for the armed citizen and and you know we're, this is going to be a course of amens your job is to get home as intact as possible okay that's intact financially intact psych psychologically i mean intact civil liability you don't want to hold people at gunpoint. You know, what I find amusing in the in the videos we're discussing is they also talk about the dangers of having a gun in your hand when the first responders show up. You know, you talk about, you know, literally, if you watch the video, you know, Paul Howe is very adamant that you don't want to have a gun in your hand when the cavalry shows up. And you know what? He's right. <laughs> you know, this whole idea that I'm going to hold somebody at gunpoint and stuff like that, that really, really is suboptimal. Especially, you know, it was one thing 10 years ago, but when you look at the, the quality of police recruit that's getting churned out in 2024, that person is going to probably be scared, you know, poopless and really not capable of making sound decisions. And, you know, a lot of law enforcement training still revolves around shoot the dude with the gun. Well, if you're the guy holding the guy at gunpoint, guess who you are? You're the dude with the gun. They've been trained to shoot on site. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's suboptimal in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, just to that very point, uh, recently a video surfaced out of the Houston, Texas area, uh, where the the two female deputies and the fact that they're female has nothing to do with it. Uh, with this, um, you know, they responded to a call that someone had broken into an apartment. They get there, they search the apartment. There's nobody there. While they're still there, they get notified that hey, there's a window screen off of that apartment across the way. So they go over and they knock on the door and what we now know as the resident comes to a knock on their door in the middle of the night and there's a car alarm horn blaring and their cops are beating on this woman's door in the middle of the night and she approaches the door with the gun in her hand and both of these these deputies run through two magazines. Two what the movie Gladiator magazines. Unleash Hell. Yeah. You know, through this woman's window at her because she walked to her own door with a gun in her hand in the middle of the night. John? Well, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're starting to beat this down pretty good, but I mean, you know, it's just, it's a nature of understanding the problem you're trying to solve. Uh, there's this crazy idea, you know, largely attributed to Pat Rogers that the mission drives the gear train. I don't see... Um, much evidence that the armed citizen needs one. I would, I, you know, I hate to, um, you know, point to the range master stuff, but, you know, none of our students have needed a weapon mounted light. 
Um, you know, this is not crime taking place in dark corners and crevices. It's a parking lot. You see Mookie and Ray Ray approaching you. They reach into their waistband as far as that kind of stuff goes. You know, this is fairly unambiguous as far as the circumstances which are occurring here. Um, you know, we wouldn't have the results we have if a weapon mounted light was required. It just does not happen in the civilian context. Again, if you're a uniformed law enforcement officer, if you're a SWAT guy, and your job is to go into that dark building and root out bad guys, you need different tools and equipment. Okay? If that is not your mission, you probably don't need the same tools and equipment. I've been doing the cop thing for 25 years as of January. In December, I started carrying with a weapon amount of light on my duty gun all the time because my agency issued it and said, put this on your gun. Okay. Huh? You know, I'm happy to work here, so I'm happy to do what you want me to do. You know, and I, and I, and I put it on my gun and I care, but it complicates everything else because now I've got to take that into account when it comes to holsters and, and the like. And, you know, is what it is. And the funny thing is, is it's a TLR-7A, I think, and I think that's 500 lumens. And the Surefire Stiletto I have in my left front pocket's a thousand lumens. Yeah, I've given up half the light or capacity. Yeah, so yeah. I've given up half the capacity of the, of the light to go to the weapon mounted light. Now I yeah. know there's X three hundred ultras and all that kind of stuff out there, and I have several X three hundreds, but that's not what my agency issue been told me to put on my gun. Yeah, yeah. When I when I first started back at it, um, what six years ago. Um, I had a uh, AE Nelson, you know, reverse cant duty holster for M&P, and that's what I was going to use. And then um, the chief said, everybody's going to Safari Land holsters. And when I went to the uniform store, the only Safari Land holster they had for M&Ps was, you know, a, a whatever it is, the 6360, um, you know, with a, a Surefire X300 on it. So I bought both, and that was what I used. You know, if they would have had one with no weapon light on it, I would have gotten that one because for me, it's easier to sit down. You know, it's easier to sit down, especially in a small, tiny Durango where your gun butts up against that center console anyway. You know, it's it's literally a pain in the ass. Yeah. You know, John, you mentioned Tom Givens. Tom is obviously an incredible mentor to the two of us. And I know he is at Sherman as well, but you, know, you and I are both mm -hmm. on Range Master staff. Yeah. We, we go and we spend time in Tom's house. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not just a guy that has taught us. We have a very close personal relationship. Tom goes to great pains to advocate for a thumbs high shooting position. I shoot with a thumbs forward shooting position. It doesn't make everything else Tom says irrelevant because I disagree with him on that one factor. And to be fair, I do shoot thumbs high, which is why Lynn loves me more. Uh, Lynn does not love you more, but uh, go ahead, take it. Well, as far as the well, as far as the lights, I think we've beaten that down pretty good. It's just yeah. it's not you know it's it's one of those things. There's like there's theory and there's application. There's this. I actually first heard this from from William. We were discussing earlier. You know that supposedly the French famously said, "Sure, it works in practice, but how does it work in theory?" And that's where we are. We have a lot of people that don't have any understandings of the dynamics of violent confrontations saying well theoretically 
you need this. Okay. Well, practically, when people we look at people doing the job, what do they actually need? And the, the simple answer is it's not there. And again, you know, again, if we're going to reference old guys, let's talk about Jeff Cooper, his uh, idea of the preoccupation with insignificant increments. Um, you know, I'm in the whole process of reevaluating what I'm carrying now that I'm not, you know, full time law enforcement and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a slightly smaller gun starts to make a lot more sense as far as this stuff goes. But there are guys out there that because they want, uh, you know, a patch or they want to be able to brag about a builder or stuff like that are going to carry, you know, a Glock 34 with a uh, X300 turbo and an SRO. And it's like, God bless you, dude, if you want to do that. But don't sit there and look at everybody that doesn't do that and go, oh, wow, those people must be really must be morons. You can find a reason that I'm probably a moron, but it's not for equipment choice. Right. Well, you know, you carry a 320 and that shoots itself. Oh, you don't have to do it. That, that's how much of a gamer you want to be. Yeah, absolutely, man. Pistol runs itself. <laughs> you know, I went through that same thing. And when I was contemplating career changes here, you know, in the last year and was one of the things I was looking at was a corporate job. And I started looking at the whole downsize option going away from a full-size gun and ultimately ended up staying in the profession just in a different capacity. Uh, and now I'm carrying a bigger gun than I have for the last 15 years. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, what is your mission? I guess it comes back down to that too. It's, it's if I'm not out trying to actively hunt down and chase people, I need a firearm for if someone tries to hunt me down or I become the prey. And I, from, other than that, I need something that is not as detectable. Mm -hmm. Because even though I, I you know, legally can carry any pretty much anywhere, there becomes a hey factor if I get caught. Mm -hmm. When I say caught, not as in caught doing something wrong, but if I get discovered, I guess it'll be a better, yeah. better Found term. Out. Yeah. And. You know, you kind of try to find that happy median of capacity, performance, and I guess hideability would be a way to 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 build that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, because there's a lot of people that carry concealed, and by that they mean the cover garments over the top of it, but the gun's really not hidden. And you know, people love to go to this appendix carry. I see more people, I make more people that are carrying concealed in the appendix position than I do that are carrying concealed strong side. Now, I've got nothing against appendix carry. Nothing at all. If that's what you choose to do, have at it. It just doesn't work for me. Well, I think that, that was you know, one of the points that they brought up that they were contentious about. And I think that Ken did fair service. And a couple of thoughts mm -hmm. there. Number one, Appendix does have its own set of issues. When I have, like, I have a standard safety brief, I do. It has, like, a slide or two for AIWB users. I don't care that you do it, but you need to make sure you do it smart. And what I see in a lot of classes is that people will start out using a really good solid holstering technique in the morning, and it goes away in the afternoon because they're getting fatigued. Now, I, this just occurred to me from uh, earlier today when I was thinking over this stuff. You know, one of the things that Hackathorn is famous for doing is his snake drill. That is, that is an exercise where you fire live rounds past fellow students to get you used to that experience as far as this goes. This is a man that has a slightly different take on risk management. 
if the dude that does live fire snake drills says, I'm not really great with this whole appendix thing in class, because that's what he said. I don't care what you do off the range, but I have serious concerns with you doing it repeatedly in class. If the dude that thinks live fire snake drills are good to go and is not thrilled about appendix, I would kind of stop and think, do I really need to reconsider appendix as far as this stuff goes? Yeah. Or at least in that setting. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, when I'm getting exposed to new material, I prefer to do that from duty gear. And then I take that back and I go run it concealed in my practice sessions. Well, Once the other I thing that mastered it from the duty gear, because I'm more comfortable working from the duty gear than I am concealed. So I, I master it from that platform and then I adapt it to the other things. Um, you know, so I, I want to train with it in the pit. I, I get it. I actually get it. I allow a penance carry in my classes. Uh, the other gentleman in that video, Paul Howe, carries in the appendix position. Neither one of them was saying you shouldn't carry an appendix. Ken actually says that he, there was a portion in his time when he carried um, a lightweight commander in the appendix position. Mm -hmm. position. I bet you it was in a uh, original Bruce Nelson summer special before yep. it was Milt Sparks. And um, he said it just wasn't comfortable for him, like literally yeah. physically comfortable, which I get. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was going to say something about that. So uh, back in 2010, I trained with um, Larry Vickers and, um, you know, Larry and Ken used to be, you know, real tight and um, and followed a lot of the same, you know, class protocols because they taught together. And when I took that class, uh, um, appendix carry was prohibited. And, um, you know, so I carried it at three o'clock, you know, in a like Askins Avenger type rig. And, um, and, you know, of course that's absolutely permissible. And when I do go to places where, you know, I'm not with y'all or range master or tactical response people, like people that I can kind of sort of blend in and just look like a rando, um, you know, I don't, I'll, I'll carry it that way just because it looks, uh, inconspicuous you know and i just look like just some regular uh you know fud x guy that uh it can you know the, the where there's nothing special you know nothing flashy about it at all and um so yeah and i and i mean you know if that's the choice that he makes for his courses and his teaching well how can you argue with that you know like he doesn't want people to do that for liability reasons that's like up to him if you if the hill that you're going to die on has to do with you absolutely positively carrying an appendix when you go train at other places, then don't go train with Ken. And, and he's probably tell you the same thing. Like he's good with it. Well, nothing I think it's important to recognize there is that the guys that are carrying AIWB have not discovered anything. You have not invented anything. You, you <clears> mentioned <throat> Bruce Nelson earlier. Um, I did this class with Scotty Reitz in the back in the aughts. That makes me sound really mm -hmm. old, doesn't it? Um, but they talked about LAPD guys would carry appendix, like especially like surf shirts, surfing and stuff like that apparel. I think that they would all recognize it's one thing to carry the gun in the real world to maximize concealment from appendix. It's another thing to engage repeatedly over a series of days in the most hazardous process that we engage in, which is holstering and reholstering the pistol. And I think yeah. that if you know your 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 personal you know risk reward analysis works out to the way that I don't want it in the class. That's certainly up to him. 
And again, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But to sit there and say that he's a FUD after he's done it and he's carefully considered it, what it means in his world is, is just a bit um, I, I'm, naive is not the right word. I would dare say pretentious is probably mm -hmm. a better adjective or just asinine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I doubt that a lot of those people that are his naysayers watch that video with the level of uh, uh, discernment and precision that that we did you know what i'm saying like they just kind of like give me the cliff notes give me the tldr version um and um and you know they just pick the uh the first line without any of the justification you know it's it's just basically like pulling a soundbite i mean it is pulling a soundbite because that's what they chopped and put into all these memes that you know were going around instagram and uh I think it's funny because, uh, you know, on the issues of the red dot, it wasn't Ken that was more adamant against red dots. It was Paul Howe. And I'm like, of yeah. all the people, I mean, we can sit here. I think I find it ridiculous to poo-poo anything in Ken's background and resume. But if you really want like a rock star resume, it's Paul Howe. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate. I think Lee has as well. I've trained with both Ken and Paul Howe. Paul Howe is a it must work 100% all the time. And especially for somebody coming from his world, if you're going for your pistol, a lot of other stuff has gone wrong to get there. So having a system that works 100%, okay, i.e. iron sights, is something that he's going to find preferential. And the other thing, here's the ugly truth, is that red dots hold a lot of potential. I'm not sure that all the iterations are there yet. And it's not necessarily that the optics can't hold up. It's that the mounting systems still suck. And yes, yeah. let's get this out of the way. Have I ever seen iron sights failing class? Yes, I have seen iron sights failing class or the range master class I helped out with. We had some poor dude. I'm glad he wasn't, you know, ha didn't have any surgery scheduled because his dot died and the front sight fell off of his Glock, right? But when we look overall, what do we see in classes? I would say in almost every class I've been in and around, at least one red dot, quote unquote, fails. Fail yeah. can be... The battery went dead, okay? The, you almost never see the electronics themselves die, but a lot of times the things just launch themselves off of the gun because, number one, the mounting systems are too complex. And, uh, you know, Gelhouse can comment on this a lot. There's a fairly specific system, if you want that to stay on there, that you have to use. It's like you have to let the Loctite cure for 24 hours. And you may do it the first time, but when you have to swap a battery or something like that, it just doesn't work. So... To sit there and go, you know, I think Hackathon was very clear. If you're one, that 1% 1 of the shooters that are really going to do the work, Red Dots probably hold some advantage. Here's the other little nugget. If you're one of those one percenters, you're probably going to follow the instructions, right, and do the work. But if, on the other hand, you're one of those people that sticks a gun in a sock drawer and goes and shoots it maybe every five years or so, a Red Dot probably is not for you. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that gets me is I've, I've seen several references to people that are commenting on this stuff, it's particularly the, the videos in question tonight, that have not watched the videos in full. Yeah. You know, one individual, I haven't seen what he said in full, but I watched a couple of clips from it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're making definitive judgments. Off of sound bites. Uh, yeah, off, off of a sound bite. Yeah, I was a PIO for a long time. 
Mm-hmm. I've I've been in front of a lot of news cameras. And sometimes what you say in front of the news camera is not what gets actually portrayed when the news <laughs> story actually runs. Or you may right. do a 15, 20 minute interview and then they show a clip of you for 30 seconds. Yeah. What you're actually saying. And sometimes it's not that they don't that they misquote you, it is that they half quote you. And that changes the context of, of what you said. And yeah, you know, what I felt those two gentlemen did was they gave very nuanced explanations, and then people are wanting to ignore that nuance, and they're just going for the for the for the headline. Yeah. And you know, it, it just uh, John. I'm going to throw this to you for a second. You and I both attended Larry Mudgett's class a couple of years ago. Larry, if I recall, required a strong side outside the waistband holster for the class. Did he not? It seems correct. Like he even recommended like a blade tech or something like that. That that seems right. Yeah, but he 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 required a strong side outside the waistband holster for the class. One of the best classes I've ever attended. Bar nine. And, you know, if you want to talk about somebody who's been there, done that. Yeah. Yeah. It's Larry Mudgett. And so we're going to discount everything this this man has to, to say about uh, the use of, of firearms as a tool in conflict because he mandated an ounce strong cut outside the waistband holster for this class. Okay. All right, then your opinion, I don't know that it's relevant if that's the way you're going to feel about it. Yeah. The man's got two medals of valor. Yeah. He trained the Marine Corps version of the whatever their equivalent of the SEALs and Delta is. He's who the Marines brought in to do their initial training. He's one, one of two guys that did that. Okay. That guy has hit a lot of pipes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's just Oh well, but I I I can't shoot an appendix carrier in his class. He's irrelevant. Mm, okay, carrier, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I just I just, and it's funny. This community, for lack of a better term, is really very 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 small, and there are a lot of people that go through the class circuit from all the you know the big traveling instructors and everything and and it always amuses me how people have been to two or three classes and they think that it qualifies them to speak on the same level as people Mm -hmm. who've actually been in it day in day out and done that and or they'll say well you know i work in a gun store and i train these people and i I train so many people a year and you know and their their state level concealed carry class or pistol 101 and the like that's not the equivalent that does not mm-hmm. put you on an equal standing to people who have been actually training people to go into some of the worst areas in this world into combat. But have also literally yeah. hunted men professionally. Yeah. You know, like four keeps and yeah. been really good at it. You know, so much so that, they, I mean, they've made movies about Paul Howe's exploits. And he yeah. was, the you know, the fictionalized character in the movie was also a badass you know like come on yeah. like 
the, the dude's got all the room in the world to be able to talk. And like for people to disregard that, it's like you, you probably watched this movie when you were in the fifth grade, kid, and you have no idea the, the connection between, the, you know. All right, what we're talking yeah. about is the movie Black Hawk Down, or as they call it, The Battle yeah. of the Black Sea. Paul Howe was the go-to guy that got everybody out of that situation. That's what, you know, yeah. these people that want to poo-poo him, like, dude, no. he And he. the great thing about Paul is that he worked law enforcement before he went into the Army, and he worked law mm -hmm. enforcement afterwards. So After. he's, you know, one of those rare individuals that's really been able to see both sides of the house as far as that stuff goes. Three sides of the house. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just... I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. I'll throw this out here real quick because we're a reader. There's an awesome essay that got turned into a book called The Death of Expertise. I actually was depressed because it was published, originally published back in 2014 uh, in The Federalist. Uh, it got expanded into a whole book talking about, I think, a lot of what the problems we're seeing here is goes back to this whole idea of the death of expertise is that we don't want to recognize because of all of our logical fallacies and cognitive biases that there may be people smarter than us and experts in a certain area. You know, Palm does a great yeah. lecture. It's like, you know, I don't have a right to an expert opinion in nuclear physics. I have not earned that. I do have the right to an expert opinion in the realm of personal self-defense. And, you know, Ken Hackathorn and Paul Howe are very much in that same category. Yeah. You know, the, the Internet is a special place because on the Internet, I had someone explain to me what happened in a shooting that I investigated and testified in court as an expert witness, but they'd seen the video. Yeah. And they told me, well, well what happened was like, that's okay. I actually interviewed the people involved, uh, testified yeah. in the, in the court hearing was at the crime scene. You know, I, I've, I, it, it just kills me. But, you know, last week, uh, I was in an automotive shop taking a car in for an issue and I told the the, the guy that I was handing the keys off to uh, I was taking it for a work vehicle and I said hey my boss says he wants this check because he thinks this might be happening and the mechanic kind of bristled there for a second I said sir I don't know if that's what's the problem or not my mechanical aptitude, you know, aptitude on this goes, if I turn the key and the car works, it's fine. If it doesn't, I bring it to you. Yeah. <laughs> You're the expert here. Yeah. You know, and why can't, I just don't understand why people can't say, I don't know about that. Let me turn it in. Or that person may know more about this than I do. Let's. Yeah. 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 John was talking earlier about, you know, the, the um you know the logical fallacy of the appeal to authority but like you know like you said i mean the, the, if there is a clear authority than ken hackathorn on modern day pistol craft going back to the beginning yeah um and paul howe being you know i mean wasn't that like the first operational use of red dot sites on carbines like if it wasn't, it was the early days, like the aim point 3000 or whatever they called it, you know, that was on the guns that they used at the battle of the black sea in 19 in October of 1993. Um, and I'm sure that those things had issues then, even though that was, you know, the best in Swiss made optics at the time. Um, so yeah, I mean, just to poo poo those guys is 
just yeah. ridiculous. I mean, it's it's yeah, like Tom, where he says, you know, if you uh, uh, if you don't have the education, training, uh, and experience to be considered an expert in this field, then actually, no, you are not entitled to your opinion. Yeah, right. and you know, and yeah, a, a, a three uh, sixteen-hour classes doth not an expert make. You know, I mean. Right. I am not qualified. I am not qualified to tell a grandmaster in USPSA how to do grandmaster stuff. Yeah. And shoot those matches. At the same token, unless that grandmaster has been recognized in court as an expert witness on use of force, they're not qualified to tell me about use of force. Correct. And so if I start trying to tell some USPSA grandmaster what he needs to do better in his match performance, I expect that person to shut me down and shut me down hard. Yeah. Because I deserved it. Jonathan, you were about to say something. Just gonna think, you know, a couple points to think about is like, you know, also the message we're sending with all this crap, right? Um, do we want to tell people who are interested in self-defense that I have to go buy what is a what is a a fully set up, you know, pistol, red dot light? Is what a fourteen, fifteen hundred dollar investment, depending on how that goes, to defend yourself. I think that's ridiculous because it's not true and you're doing people a disservice. You know, you can go on gun. I was looking out there today, go get you a police trade in. They're kind of harder to find, but like a, a dude, if you have a police trade in Glock 19 that you paid $350 for and a handheld flashlight, the reality is if you have solved most of your equipment needs for self-defense, what you have to do is a bunch of work. And it goes back to this American fascination with trying to buy hardware solutions to software problems. But I don't want to tell somebody that they have to spend $1,500 to get the latest super mega blaster to be able to defend themselves and their families. When, uh, you know, outside of, you know, hand fitment issues, a Glock 19, I can't believe this is, James is smiling from heaven because we argued about this a lot, right? If you just get a Glock 19, right, and stoke it with different, decent ammo, shoot it maybe every other month, that has solved most of your issues. The other thing that I find interesting about that is I can never pronounce this right, but the whole analysis of que bene or que bono, however it is, is basically asking who benefits from this stuff. Mm-hmm. Hackathorn and you know Powell are saying don't spend your money on this stuff yet. Wait, okay, they're not getting any benefit. Who benefits from telling you to go out and buy the latest you know Gucci blaster and stuff like that? It, you know, I, if you just do that analysis, well. I would politely offer, and, and, and no offense to Wayne Dobbs, I love Wayne, right? Um, that, you know, maybe it's the manufacturers of this gear that are trying to convince you that this stuff is going to save all of your issues. And I, I think, Lee, you've commented on this, and I can't, sure, I'm not sure what, I, I've got that point where I can pretty much say what I want now, that filters off, right? But, you know, you've had people come through, qualify, go through a red dot qualification course, and come back a year later and not be able to pass with the red dot. Come back a month later and not oh, a month later. Pass. Yeah. 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 I've had a couple of guys that went through a two day transition course and shoot the highest qualifications score I've ever shot come to calls the next month through the agency and fail the calls. Yeah. On their first run. We because are, they uh, haven't done anything since they walked away from the range that day. Yeah. I think we're in like a weird transition zone with this stuff in that if you. Yeah. If you're a solid iron sighted shooter, there's a lot of work to get to a red dot. 
Now, the guys that have only had red dots on their gun since day one that have that draw stroke built, you know, the guys that are going through the academy and never shot a pistol, they're going to be at a huge advantage, right? Uh -huh. And I was going to say, quite honestly, my uh, my oldest son is at the point where he's starting to learn to shoot. You know, it's a, a bolt-action twenty-two. You know what I did when he's going to learn to shoot that bolt-action twenty-two? Well, it's the first equipment that I went out and bought for it. I bought him a red dot yeah. because hitting is fun, uh -huh. right? But, you know, especially in this weird transition period where we're going from iron sights to, to dots and the technology isn't quite there, you know, if his red dot dies on his rifle, it's not the end of the world. If a police officer's red dot dies, it may, in fact, be the end of the world as far as this stuff goes. And again, uh, I don't think anybody here is saying that this equipment is worthless or, or unable to be utilized. Hackathorn didn't say that, right? It's like, you know, if you're one of the, 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 the good people, this stuff is beneficial. Um, I think that the mounting issues really, really have to be resolved. Do you want to rant on mounting issues for a second, Lee? Um, mounting plates. is one of the bigger issues should. that I see. What's that? Is it our plates your favorite? <laughs> oh, I will not, for a actual duty or slash carry gun, I will not do it if it's got plates on it. Uh, it's going to be a direct mount system for me. Um well, I say I want not do it. Thankfully, my agency bought direct mounted guns right as I started with them, so I didn't have to have to charge up that hill. Uh, thank you, boss. Um, I see constant, constant uh, failures in the mounting systems out there, and I, that is the bigger issue to me than than the dots failing themselves. I'm really not worried about the dot failing um, so much as I am about people screwing up the mounting or the screws breaking or the, the components that they're using being defective. Now, on duty, I'm carrying a direct mill from the factory, uh, Glock 45 with an Acro. I was given my choice of an Acro or an SRO. And the Acro mounting system is vastly superior, in my opinion. And I wanted the enclosed optic. And to me, that for a duty gun that's going to be exposed, I think that's a big deal. I'm not necessarily hung up on it having to be ex uh, enclosed for concealed. However, the guns that I have that I'm actually going to carry concealed are enclosed optics. Uh, just because that's what I've got. And that's how I intentionally set up that way. But they are also direct mount guns from the factory. Um, at least four times I've had an optic fly past my head on the range from I'm working the line and come off of other shooters' guns. At least four that I can think of right now off the, off the fly. Um, it's just a constant, constant, constant problem. Uh, people don't follow the advice about letting the the uh, Loctite cure, doing all the degreasing when they change stuff out. Um I don't want to get too in-depth and too involved into a conversation I had along those lines, and I'm trying to explain that to someone, and the response was, well, other people know about this stuff, too. I'm like, okay, I'm not saying other people don't know about this stuff. I said, but I'm multiple certifications on this at this point. I'm in contact with several large agencies that are implementing them agency-wide. This is what they're telling me, and so you should just let people fail to find out. Because if we're going to let people go into a critical situation and fail to find out, I have a problem with that line of thinking. Um, 
but I'm going to circle back to something you posted in uh, one of our message threads this week, John. You posted something about a pistol, picture of a pistol, or target or something, and and a pistol, and all the conversation that took place about the pistol. And your response was, "It really is about the gear, isn't it?" I'm a I'm a trying to be a gun whore, and I'm trying to generate content and learn how to mm -hmm. edit video. And, you know, I'm evaluating the 365 macro. And I'm like, you know, one of the things that nobody seems to do is it's like, you know, I don't know if it's because they don't have the equipment or the time or the mindset. It's like, hey, I've got 365. I've got a 365 XL. I've got a 365 macro. I've got my 320 that's been my normal concealed carry gun. And I'm probably going to mix in my old duty gun. And it's like, can we objectively measure the various performances on these different platforms? And what I'm giving up, which kind of, you know, cycles back to the, you know, some of the videos we were discussing earlier the obsession with tiny pistols, you know, um, the 365 and the 365 XL are fundamentally different guns in my hand as far as performance and stuff like that goes. And it was just interesting running the, you know, basically either five yard roundup or the, uh, uh, the Bakersfield qual and just trying to put objective numbers on these things. You know, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm really early in the evaluation process, but you know, what I saw was that the macro, the the macro easily passed Bakersfield qual. The 365 XL um, did pretty good on Bakersfield, except everything was just a little bit slower. And you know, realistically, does that speed matter? If I'm putting you know you know 90 some points up on Bakersfield, does the fact that like I you know like on a on a two second par, I only have you know I have a, a tenth or a twentieth grace period. It's probably not quite as important. But man, you know, everybody was absolutely obsessed with the gun gear, and I'm like. Um, <laughs> As a hat tip to Spencer Keepers, you know, I did actually fire that single round into the X as my first shot out of the gun. Maybe spending a little bit more time figuring out how to get the, the bullets to go in the center of the target might be a more worthwhile discussion than which particular gun you're using. Because I've said it before, I'll say it again. They're all soulless plastic pistols at this point. Uh -huh. uh, there's not a dime's worth of difference between a Glock, an MP, a Smith, you know, a, a Sig 320 an FN or something like that, they're all soulless plastic pistols. You know, they all kind of work the same at this point. We've got that one figured out, you know. Um, again, people loving hardware solutions to software problems, and again, fixating on the hardware as far as that stuff goes. I want you to get on YouTube, you, both you guys and everybody listening to this. Just get on YouTube and start looking for reviews of a particular firearm. It doesn't matter which firearm, just, you know, 365 macro or Glock 48 or, or whatever. And you're going to run across dozens of channels from these reviewers that they've got some sort of catchy screen name. They never post what their shooting resume is, what their training background is, any of that kind of stuff. So they're not putting any kind of reputation on the line. And some of these have tens 20,000 subscribers some of them way up high, you know, or more and all their video reviews are are basically it's just the camera showing the gun shooting they never show the targets <laughs> they never show their grips they never show any of that and people eat it up and I was trying to do was actually I was trying to have a figure out how to have a camera on the target that would actually show hits and record me shooting at the same time and be able to actually, Hey, this is, you know, 
because it's like how do I say this? I'm not a USPSA grandmaster, but I'm a fair hand with a pistol, and it's like you know this is you know what passing the ba- hopefully passing the Baker's Field Wild looks like and stuff like that. And like there's the target. It's a B8, and that you can see where that hit went. You can see where that went hit went, and you know the uh, you know it's interesting to watch as the pistol gets smaller. You know when you do miss, the the misses seem to go wider. It's almost like mm-hmm. it's related or something. I don't know. Sherman, save him. I think he's choking in the background. Fill in screen time. Oh. If he dies, he dies, but we can't have dead air. Sir, sir, are you choking? Can I help you? Um, yeah, I I think that um, it's the, you know, like the thing you were talking about with Cooper with the uh, preoccupation with inconsequential increments, you know, the um, if I take a Glock 48, a Glock 43X, uh, a shield, you know, and then whatever iteration of the 365 and I shoot them all like I shoot all of them like comparably, but, you know, performance wise, but like there's, you know, I like the way that the 365 and the shield feel over the Glocks, you know what I mean? Like just the way that the, uh, that the gun uh, recoils, you know, it's like more comfortable to shoot, but the performance differences are, are negligible you know and i think that that's like one of those things that um that's in the grand scheme it's probably not that big of a deal but like um like you were saying there's enough of a metric um to discern that there you know there, there's there is going to be a first place winner uh you know across your uh your family of sigs there well, I think the you know the really big thing is that you know the the famous Thomas Soul quote that there are no solutions, only trade offs. It's like if yeah. the only thing I can carry is that three sixty five. I, I experienced this a lot when I carried the full size two twenty. Dude, I love uh, fall weather when I could mm-hmm. carry in a fleece vest and an OWB holster. So you know, yeah, realistically, uh, you know, a really good concealment holster for a uh, you know five inch forty five. I mean, that's like you know when you go inside the waistband and tuck back a little bit, that's a good quarter of a second draw. You know, sure. and it's not so much that these trade-offs don't exist. They obviously exist. We just have to understand what they are. You know, what are you giving up? Yeah. What are you getting along the way? And, um, you know, I, I think that we could probably cash this whole discussion about just an overall lack of critical thinking on these issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, um, I, I think it, you know, like you said, I mean, people make such a big deal about the, about the equipment aspects of it when that is like the, you know, like Jaeger used to say, you know, mindset, mindset, tactics, skill and gear, you know, and, and he adapted that from AUB's uh, survival principles. And, um, you know, gear is like the least important thing. I spent like the last season of competition season, you know, Rick Remington and I shoot in a local um, league here every week. Um, and um, we both decided to be, weirdos and shoot revolvers um for the season and so he shot a four inch 686 with a red dot and i shot a two inch model 15 you know with adjustable k-frame sights and at the end of the season i mean we were literally like 70 points apart you know it was you know out of like four forty five hundred points or something like that you know it wasn't like that big of a of a difference and so you know i i just i think all of these comparison talks that people do are largely just folly i mean like 
it all comes down to your preparation and and how you wield the tool you know you like like uh you know that old saying either you're the weapon and the gun is the tool or the gun is the weapon and you're the tool yeah randy harris was on a while back we were talking about uh small guns like the backup gun category of guns and i think we settled on about a 16 percent drop off between say like a glock 19 to a glock 48 mm -hmm. um in, in some various testing i think he's running a 43 and yeah that makes a difference if you're competing for metrics in a in a patch or something or as brian easters calls it you know range pokemon at the end of a, end of a class yeah. but i don't know how much that is going to translate into the difference in a parking lot right i was doing some some work with a uh uh sig p365 micro tac ops uh, you know sig glock's easier to say glock 48 you know i don't have to do all the nomenclature at the end of it Okay, I can't run it as good as I can run the forty-five with the acro, but I think I can sure. run it pretty good enough. Yeah, uh, to accomplish the thing. But it's, and it's a whole lot easier to hide. It's a whole yeah. lot easier to hide, and I think I can still do what I need to do with that gun. Yeah. So, man, I'm having a tough time of it here with with the this cough going on. I caught a virus or something a couple of weeks ago, and I'm still still fighting hard to get over it. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it's been going through here too. Yeah. Um, of course, you know it does come down to the to the 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 Indian instead of the arrow at times as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I hear rumors that an old fat guy showed up at an Academy Range Week here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and was out running the uh, guys with their fancy soulless plastic pistols with a revolver and was reloading it faster than they were getting it done with the magazines. That's funny when that happens. Yeah. So sometimes just doing the work pays off. John, what you got upcoming? Uh, just a reminder, I'm teaching a range master instructor course out in California. Uh, we do have enough students to make that class, so I'll definitely be out there, but we could use a few more bodies there. Um, I'm going to be in Culpeper uh, in October. I've got a bunch of dates that like, are on the cusp of finalizing as far as this stuff goes. The other one that's for sure set is I'll be doing Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why, and the two-day version of Cognitive Pistol out in Bandera, Texas. The excellent host, Tim Reedy, is going to be out there. I'll be out there in May. Uh, that'll be, I think, my last time in Texas this year. Uh, I was just at Carl's in January, so uh, catch that in May if you're in the anywhere near San Antonio. Uh, at the risk of saying so, uh, there's a I've got a bunch of rave reviews on that class. I'm trying to keep them posted on the Facebook business page and stuff like that. Uh, and hopefully I'll be finalizing some date, probably August in Ohio uh, and some other stuff, some private classes I've got booked as well. Sherman? Uh, I don't have anything scheduled um, coming up aside from I'm doing a block um, at TACCON. That's uh, a little bit of departure for me. Well, not really a departure for me. It's just a departure for what I normally present at TAC on uh, because it's usually Caleb Causey and I doing medical stuff, but I, I'm just kind of tired of that and um, not tired of Caleb. I mean, just tired of my <laughs> medical block. 
Um, so um, I'm going to talk, you know, and, I, and most, I guess I didn't mention it, but I actually have a degree in philosophy. So it's something that I do have education, training and experience on which to speak. Um, so I was going to just talk about, um, you know, when I wrote the civilian defender, becoming the civilian defender article years back, um, you know, it was a solid essay and it stuck and, you know, got put in a couple of books and um, turned out to, you know, hold water after, um, I guess it's been almost nine years since I wrote it. Um, and so I thought that I would kind of like talk about further developments, you know, down the road. And thank you for shouting me out, John, in your last lecture <clears throat> with that. That was very kind of you. Um, not the sociopath part, but the part about the civilian <laughs> defender hierarchy part. Um, the uh, So yeah, TACCON coming up there at the first weekend in April is uh, all I have on the books for training wise at the moment. But um, I may make a couple, you know, I, I like to do appearances, you know what I mean? Like if, if, if one of y'all needs help or something like that, like, you know, I like to do that. Like uh, th then as far as like, you know, I, I'm, I'm like the, uh, you know, I'm like the Bob Newhart of uh, the tonight show. You know, I just kind of show up and blend in. <laughs> well, we're dating ourselves there. Yeah. Which yeah. You yeah. Only the old people will to. catch that one. Yeah, <laughs> the original New Heart show. <laughs> Are we going to wake up next to uh, Suzanne Pleasant in the morning? And, uh, yeah, exactly. Her. Yeah, not that one. The, yeah, the I need one to before. wear more sweaters. Yeah, <laughs> I only have two. Well, you know that's how the 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 series ended. That the one that was set in the end of New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah, is the final scene was he woke up next to Suzanne Pleasant and said, "Wow, You'll I never just believe the, the dream I just dream. had." Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so well the, the people that are screaming and shouting and throwing things at, at hackathon and how are really gonna like be mad at us at this point yeah i'm larry i'm daryl this is my yeah. other brother daryl yeah there you go <laughs> so dude all we've effectively become is a reserve fud brigade that's all we are at this point yeah we're the um we're the uh um like worthy rapid intervention team for the FUDs. Don't worry, FUDs, we got you. The Gen Xs are right behind you. <laughs> oh, we gotta have patches and t-shirts made. That, that's that's oh uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. The QRF. Uh, we're the FUD QRF. There you go. Yeah. Uh I did work things out where I'm going to be able to make it to TACCON. And so rather than Tiffany having to go through all the trouble of reworking the schedule to fit me in. Uh, I'm going to be the emergency pitch hitter because there's always cool. someone who ends up having to cancel or something at the last mm -hmm. moment. And I'm just going to fill in whatever spots I come open. My classroom block is going to be a civics class. Oh, and cool. so you're talking about education and training outside. I, I also teach college level political science classes. And so I'm going to give the civics class that you all should have gotten in high school or the one that you actually got in high school, but you didn't pay attention to it back then. Um, so that that's what I'm going to do for classroom stuff. I don't know what I'll do for range if if I'm needed on the range. I'll come up with something. Juggling. Uh, what's that? Juggling. Well, there you go. Someone yeah. will have to teach me how to do that because I don't know how to do it. Um, I am close enough to the end of the current graduate program to start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I am ten weeks from finishing. Uh, the class that I'm currently enrolled in, I have one more paper and one more module slash test to 
do to finish that. And then there's one more eight-week class uh, after that, and I will be done with that. So first of May, middle of May, somewhere around in there. And so I'm starting to look to schedule some stuff beyond that because I'm starting to kind of get a feel for my new job schedule and everything. So cool. uh, maybe I'll have some some stuff coming out, uh, open enrollment-wise coming. And I can put some of this new education to use, but uh, really? nothing to announce right at the moment. I do know September 21st, I'll be in Cisco, Georgia, which is up near uh, Dalton. But we don't know which class it's going to be. We just settled on that day. Uh, either one of you got any closing thoughts? Respect your elders sure. and be knowledgeable of history. Like, seriously, like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, if, uh, you, you know, I know that it, my son just turned 18 two weeks ago. And I know that, like, eats his ass every day that yeah. I tell him, like, you know, 32 years ago i was driving down this same road and da, 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 like literally and um and and it and it bugs him and it bugs you know the kids of of that generation but you, you'll roll your eyes now but you'll appreciate it when uh, you either are about 20 more years down the road or you have children of your own and you need to recount something to them that is significant from the past yeah yeah, I was teaching an interviews and interrogations block to a bunch of baby cops here a couple of weeks ago. And there was an excerpt from the interview with Tim McVeigh. Mm -hmm. And about three or four of the people in the class knew who Tim Didn't McVeigh know who was, it was and what had happened in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so oh, yeah. I had to stop the class and teach yeah. a history lesson. Yeah. Yeah. John, you got any follow up? No, I think the, the duly noted, you know, a love of history and a little bit of critical thinking will take you a long way in life. Yeah. All right. I will close with this. Uh, there used to be an NBA coach by the name of Lenny Wilkins. Lenny Wilkins also played in the NBA, and he was at practice one day running his team through his series of drills. And one of the players looked at him and said, hey, coach, did you play ball? And the coach was like, yeah. And like went on to do something else and offered no explanation. And the other player said, "Um, he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He also wound up in the Hall of Fame as a coach as well. So he's made it to the Hall of Fame twice. But I'm willing to bet there's some boomer out there, Zoomer. I heard that term the other day. So they want to call us boomers, they're Zoomers. There's some youngster out there right now that will try to tell Lenny Wilkins something about basketball. Play ball. Like, like he doesn't know anything about it. Yeah. That he's irrelevant. The guy's in the Hall of Fame twice. Yeah. And a professional in the field did not know that. Yeah. Just think about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, folks, um, please be sure to only share the link to these episodes with your smart friends. And we know that your your time is your most important asset. Thank you to choose to spend it with us. <laughs>